I think we did have a big vision. I think we're both pretty ambitious women. I don't know if I sort of thought I would have had a 10-year business, but I was certainly like, you know, let's have several years in this and make millions of dollars and be super successful and really back ourselves in, in what we do. So it was exciting when we did have success and kind of surprising too, but we also set out with that mindset. One of my proudest moments is Barack Obama listed our program as part of his initiative of, you know, things that need to be done to get computer science out there for everyone. Welcome to Multiple Hats, a show about STEM professionals who have gone off script and carved their own path beyond the tracks that were set for them. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, medicine, how they found their why and what it takes to make it happen. I'm Angelic, and on the show today, I talk to Heather Catchpole, the co-founder of Refraction Media, a super popular Australian science media company that Heather Catchpole and Karen Taylor-Brown founded nine years ago. It is now distributing 2 million magazines globally with 75,000 digital users per month, and they are working with over 200 clients, including giants like Google. Refraction Media is also the source of Career in STEM, a magazine that is instrumental for schools to teach kids about the rich array of STEM career available for them to go into. Heather shares how her and her co-founder Karen brainstormed that idea in a pub, as one does, and used their decade-long experience in media to pull off a successful, profitable business distributing globally within two years. Let's hear it from Heather Catchball. Tuning in from? From Sydney. I normally reside in a beautiful little remote town in Tasmania, but come up to the big city to, you know, meet some people and do some filming and things like that. Ah, okay. Beautiful Tasmania. So, I know that you've started in STEM with a Bachelor of Geological and Earth Science with a thesis in Interactive Education in Geoscience. Why geoscience? And what is it exactly that you study in geoscience? Yeah, so I, you know, I had that kind of question, I guess everybody does when they're sort of 16 and 17, and there's a lot of pressure put on you to decide your pathway. I was the arty child growing up in an incredibly sciencey household. Dinners were all about physics and maths and science was just part of my DNA, as they say. And I was absolutely the writer, the artist, the person who was never going to do science at all. But I did really love the outdoors. I've always loved the outdoors, hence the farmhouse in Tasmania. And I just, you know, was walking around the coast at one time and had that epiphany like, oh, it's so fascinating to be here and look at the rocks and think about how that might have formed and why they look like the way they do. And so I decided to go into a Bachelor of Science at ANU and study geoscience. Right. So no pressure from the family, rather just finally found your interest in that niche of science. Yeah, absolutely. I tried to. As I say, it was a really super high achieving family. Both my parents are professors of mathematics. My sister, you know, got the university medal and in physics, she was in the top, you know, 0.03% of the, the nation. So for me, it was really important to find my own path. I kind of knew, okay, acing it in science is that's kind of been there, done that. But I still had this real love of what science does and what it, what it gives to the world. So 
I started the degree at the ANU. It was a, a fantastic experience. There was a lot of field trips. I really loved the ability just to, you know, go out in the bus and stop at these road cuttings and explore and understand, you know, what they were. So we did a lot of practical geology there. And we did a lot of, you know, really interesting look at the the theory as well. This was the early days of climate change. We were, you know, discussing how the rates of climate change were growing faster than they ever had before. So it really mm. felt like there was a lot of important work that you could do yeah. in that yeah, geology space. But that's a bit of a less known discipline, let's say, to the broader public. And it's less funded also that, let's say, medical science is only 0.2% of the GDP going to that. So what are the typical careers path that are open to you after a bachelor in geological science? Or at least what was it back then? Yeah, look, I think back then as now, there's a sort of sense of you could either go into industry or academia, but also in education and communication as well. But in terms of the tracks that you could follow, you were kind of a soft rock person or a hard rock person. I think I preferred the soft rock, that's sedimentary rocks and fossils and limestones, you know, things like understanding climate change, looking at how different isotopes of elements might vary across, you know, sea levels. It's a wonderful experience going out on a field trip for two weeks on a ship and we measured the different oxygen levels in the sea and looked at how that had changed to really have a deeper understanding of the path. So that was really fascinating. And if you're a hard rock gal, it's all about volcanoes, you know, understanding the deep path. And that might be, you know, a more likely career to end up in, you know, working in mining as well, or working in something like the public service in, you know, mapping and understanding our geological past, which is super important to everything that we do, particularly to the renewable energy industry. So I think it's really important to think of mining as something that can bring about renewable energy industry as well as something where we need to be really careful about what we do in terms of keeping the planet on track as well. Very yeah, great urgency and very topical. But you didn't choose to go in industry or in government, in geological science. You did a master in science communication. And so why did you decide to do that and not pursue um, further on geological science? Yeah, so after all of that time working in geology, I spent four very valuable years understanding that this wasn't really what I wanted to do. There's a real attention to detail that you need in science. You know, scientists are experts in what they do. And when you sort of lump them all together, it's it's a bit of a false assumption, really. Everybody does different jobs and has specific understandings. I guess I just found out that, you know, what I loved most about geology was standing in front of everyone and talking about what was there. I would, you know, get out of these outcrops and start just saying what I saw and, you know, all of their fellow students would be writing down notes. And I just love that aspect of just performing and presenting and telling mm -hmm. a story. So I knew I didn't want to go into geology. I had absolutely no idea of what I wanted to do. But I was looking through the paper, as you did then, looking for work and jobs and insights and came across something that said Science Circus. And I was like, oh, that sounds like me. So that led me to the Master of Science Communication, the ANU, which is just a terrific training ground for science communication of all forms and sorts. And yeah, I spent a year there looking at the fun side of just getting science out there to, to everybody and really talking about the importance of science more broadly. Yeah. And so you had a really stellar career in science communication. If I look at your track records, you work with CSIRO, which is Australia's Scientific Centre of Research, the ABC, one of the most important media channel, the Powerhouse, which is a science museum, the Geological Society of Australia, Cosmos Magazine, a very popular science magazine in Australia, and much more before you're starting your own business. And we'll go definitely on how you founded your own business before. But can I ask you, tell me, how easy or, or hard it was to start your career in science communication? And I'm asking that because... 
when I finished uni, a few of us were quite interested in science communication, but we were strongly discouraged by the difficulty of finding well-paying, stable, and permanent role at the time. It was a little bit at the story of a few successful people amongst the many struggling others. Now, that was France. I acknowledge it's different of Australia. But is that anywhere near the truth for you? Are you actually one of the few successful people, or are there many great opportunities for wannabe science communicator? Yeah, I think there probably were more opportunities when I started out and I I didn't sort of start out, you know, just doing science communication. I worked as a journalist and at the ABC I worked as a journalist, but I was lucky to be able to specialize in science and later as a freelancer even just to specialize on in astronomy and astronomical studies. Now, that was around about the time that all of the science editors were getting fired from the generalist newspapers. So things got a little tougher. And I think the what's been true always throughout my career is you need to rethink how you're telling stories all of the time. So I started out in broadsheet newspapers, worked in radio, worked in interactive media, and the kind of advent of web 2.0 allowed us to work with a lot of user-generated content, particularly at the ABC. Obviously, it's a hugely popular media organization, so we could do things like, you know, bring people into like national sleep studies or, you know, national experiments on memory and really kind of bring people who weren't generally interested in science into the conversation. So that continues to be true. Like, you know, apps and tablets were really hot and then it was all about social media. The format changes all the time. But I've been lucky enough, I guess, to stay on the kind of main message, which is that science is cool and useful and helps us. And then the pandemic happened and everyone was like, oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) You know, that's (laughs) you're right. It really is. So I think I think that's kind of turning around again now. I think people are appreciating scientists and appreciating what they do. And I think more scientists are really interested in being communicators and understanding how important it is to communicate their research to the general public as well. Mm, rather than communicating very complex ways in papers, or even the poster where they're trying to make it more accessible, it's still very complicated. So the general public couldn't engage in any ways. Yeah, exactly. And when I worked for the Geological Society, you know, I was editing a journal and, and working in that world where generally that research expertise sits behind a bit of a, a an access wall. And that's really changed lately. And that's one of the things that chief scientist Kathy Foley always talks about is that idea of, you know, we need to be open access, but to be open access, we need to value our science. There needs to be a sense of what it is to be a great and good scientist working with other scientists. And we need to be able to reward that in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And you need funding to back that up and enable people to make this research. Yeah, we need funding for the research, but we also need funding for the dissemination of that knowledge and, and the communication as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and so it was a lot of freelance or were you lucky enough to get permanent position or does it even matter? Yeah, I did both. No, I worked at the ABC for a couple of years and then as you know, many women do, I I took a bit of a career break raising my kids. So I worked freelance, which was really fabulous experience with a two-year-old who's sort of interviewing someone about, you know, the genesis of black holes at the same time as your two-year-old is spreading sticky jam all over your feet. So I I wore multiple hats. For those years. And yeah, that was a really great experience too. I I worked at the powerhouse around the school holiday times and worked on their amazing programs. And it enabled me, as I say, to try many different platforms, you know, to kind of explore that sort of performer side of doing things as well. We did the science shows and we got nitrogen and exploded things and did that kind of fun side of science too. All right. So you spent about 15 years in editorial role. What's your biggest learning in this time? 
Yeah, I think um, the most important message I would have for anyone who's kind of interested in this space is to really, really understand the audience, really understand what they're thinking about. Never underestimate them. There's a lot of really interested people out there with a lot of knowledge, but it's about, you know, kind of connecting with them and really understanding what's going to be most relevant to them. I've done a lot of training of journalists and interns in my time. And I always say, you know, you've got to be able to shout your story across a crowded pub while someone's having a beer. You know, you've got to be able to tell them as an aside while they're cooking dinner. We're really distracted in our busy worlds. We've got a lot of competing needs. It needs to be something which is going to make them remember that while they're finish cooking their dinner or, you know, to lodge in their brain in some way. So you have to think about making that relevant. And sometimes that that means kind of taking a few different approaches. Complex science stories take a while to tell. So sometimes it's about can you just put out little bites to get people's interests and find ways to patiently and respectfully tell that story to them. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely true. And that's why I love podcasts, because then you can choose when you listen to and you can do something else at the same time. Because as you say, we wear multiple hats and it's impossible to just say, okay, I'm going to take an hour and a half to listen to something interesting right now. So, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Do it while you do the sewing or, you know, you're doing something else as well. Exactly. So then at some point, nine years ago, I believe, you decided to create your own media company, Refraction Media. And I want to deep dive into that journey. But my first question is, what's behind the name? Why Refraction Media? <laughs> do you know, it's, it's actually really quite hard to get a business name. <laughs> there was many, many attempts at, at finding the right, you know, I knew I wanted to have something sciencey in the name and, and, you know, have media in the name, but you have to look up the URLs and you have to look up the business registration and make sure that your idea fits. For us, Refraction is about, you know, distilling that message. It's about taking that message that might be out there in the light in the world and can we sort of focus that into the audience in a way that is going to best make sense to them. So, that was the kind of ethos that I was approaching the work with. What was your first pick before Refraction Media? Oh, I really wanted DNA Media, but it's already out there and they don't even do science communication. It was most frustrating. Oh, what is it? <laughs> I think it's just a general media. You know, media is in our DNA rather than like we're actually talking about DNA. So, Oh, come on. Leave the science <laughs> jargon to the scientists. <laughs> That's it. There's people out there with, you know, science business to sell here. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting DNA. So Refraction Media, we're landing on that. So can you tell us more about Refraction Media? What is it exactly? Can you take me through your current offering? Yeah, absolutely. So we started 10 years ago as custom content publishers. We were working closely with many of the organizations that we've been working with at Cosmos Media. And we had a fantastic start from the Cosmos Media leadership team in just helping us to form that business. It's an unusual business story because I started with clients and jobs to do. So my main problem was, you know, being able to kind of staff up and get these publications out there. So we started doing everything from virtual tours of nuclear reactors, working in the education space, creating content for kids and also working on telling stories in research as well. So we have a really kind of broad remit. We say our audience can be anything from kindergarten up to 90 years old, and we find the right story and the right platform to tell that. So since then, we've evolved to have several different platforms. We really focus a lot in the science and innovation space through sciencemeetsbusiness.com. We do customer content still, so we might make anything from a video to a website to doing some writing services and consultancy. And then we have careersystem.com, which is our high school and teacher 
product facing and that's been hugely successful and we've sort of developed that into a website and videos and quizzes and magazines that go out to high school students to inspire them about STEM careers. Right, like very diverse. And I understand the multitude of platforms, but you didn't start with all this platform. What was the first platform you started with? Was it printed? No, actually the very first job we had was to work on this virtual tour. So one of the first things that I did was to stand above a nuclear reactor and look down at that beautiful blue Chernikov glow and film that with a guy who was much more used to jumping out of helicopters and filming skiing. And he said it was the scariest thing that he'd ever done. But we worked to to tell the story of, of ANSTO, the amazing research that they do in nuclear science. The research reactor there is, is purely used to create medicines and to undertake research in you know health and environment. I think we work with a lot of organizations who have that issue where there's kind of a uh, preconception about what they are and what they do. So we're really all about unpacking that story and and to really, you know, help tell that story. So yeah, that was a wonderful and challenging project that we first started with. And we did do print publications as well. We worked with the University of Melbourne and Curtin University and various organizations to to sort of help them tell their research story. Mm-hmm. But so no one was doing that at that point. So why did you want to create your own media? Because there were already other science magazines. Say, what was the competitive landscape at that point? And, and what is it that you wanted to add or change in that space? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, magazines are a way to really visually engage people. It's a lean back technology. You know, it's when we're, when we're sort of flicking through content on the website and our phones and things like that. There's a, there's a different way that you engage when you, you know, you pick up a magazine and you look, you're kind of like, oh, what's, what's, you know, what's most interesting to me and what can I really pick out of this that, that tells that story? And it also was a really good way for us to connect with high schools when we're doing the high school magazines because you can physically put these copies into classrooms and in front of kids. But, you know, magazines allow you to tell a really beautiful story in a really visual way. And I'm, I'm quite a visual person, so I really connect with that ability to develop beautiful inc- infographics and galleries of photographs and to make science very, you know, artistic and visual and beautiful. Okay, so then can you tell me about your co-founder, Karen? Was she here from the very beginning? Did you decide that idea together? What's the story behind that co-founding? We did. We decided on the business in a pub. We, I worked with Karen. She was the associate publisher at Cosmos magazine and I was the managing editor. And Cosmos had changed hands and the staff had been made redundant. So, you know, we went to the pub for lunch, as you do. And Karen and I had a really brief conversation, sort of like, you know what, I think we could work together. We realized we had really complementary skills in, in that space. And then, yeah, two weeks later, Karen phoned me and she said, you know, here's the logo and here's my first proposal. And she hit the ground running, which is very characteristic of her. She's amazingly quick and really agile. So we've we've had a fabulous time in our business working together. We we both realized that we had something unique. We're very different people and the ability to to work together and to collaborate and to be kind of bigger than just what you can be on your own has always been really important to me and, and what we've achieved. Mm, did any of you have business skills at that point? Not a bit. If we had any idea of what we were getting into, I often say, I don't, I don't know that we would have jumped into it so fast. Yeah. Business is its own complex thing and we had to learn on the go, I guess, like many people do. Yeah. And so what was that very first step then? I understand the first project was, you know, the one we've answered, but once you sit down in that pub and say, let's go, we have a logo, perhaps we'll brainship the, the, the name, but then what is this very first step to get out there? Yeah, look, I think 
the as I say, we were really lucky because we were we had quite a sort of reputation in the space. We we knew the space really well. We knew who our clients might be. So if you didn't, I would say you know getting that research done and really understanding of how you can position yourself is the key part of business. But we had a lot of work to do just separate setting up operational systems, developing cash flow documents, and quarterly projections, and really developing the financial side of things. You have to have a sense really early on of what kind of business you want. We completely bootstrapped, as it's called, our business. We invested our own money. We didn't go after other investors. We did you know, scale by taking our products to global markets reasonably early in our business. How early? Probably within about two years. We were working with clients in the US and distributing magazines through US Congress and Library. One of my proudest moments is Barack Obama listed our program as part of his initiative of, you know, things that need to be done to get computer science out there for everyone. So we had some really huge tasks and and projects on the go. And I think you need to kind of think when you're running a business, you know, do I want a staff of 80? Do I want a staff of 20? Do I want a staff of 10? Like what kind of business do I want to be leading? Because if you're leading a, a business with a staff of 20 or 80, then you are a business person and what you're doing is being a business business developer, a CEO, a manager. Whereas if you have a business with 10 people, then you're probably doing a little bit of everything. Mm, so more on the multiple hats. Absolutely, yeah. But to develop cash flow and predictions and a business model. Yeah. One of the things actually that really helped with that, I, I wanted to say was, you know, for one, the New South Wales has some free coaching or, or very low cost coaching available, which was a wonderful resource. And also we entered a lot of awards and that's that really forces you to make sure that you've got your business plan. You've got your, when you enter the Telstra Business Awards, for example, you've got to have your fire safety plan. You have, you know, all of those documents <laughs> need oh, really? to be done. So yeah, it was really helpful to go through those kind of processes where you know you had to you had to show that you were a business with all of the kind of runs on the board but also all of the systems in place so hang on let's go back to barack obama because that's quite a great story <laughs> so, two years in the business so i understand you've got you've got a lot of experience in editorial making magazines so you know how to create content you know how to make it how to distribute it but two years is really early on, even though you had initial clients to be global, like how, how did you manage to get so, so much awareness that even the president of the United States was able to talk about you? <laughs> That's a secret sauce is, no, we, we worked with really amazing clients. One of our earliest clients was Google Australia, and we were very successful with what we did with them. They were an amazing partner. And through their, you know, obviously working, when you're working with a global organization, their vision is global. And the, the US team heard about what we were doing in Australia and, and it's still Australia's computer science education is still one of the best in the world in terms of what they've been doing to kind of get out there. And yeah, the US team heard about what we were doing and wanted to, to meet and to chat. I learned a lot about having meetings with Americans. My goodness, you've got to have, you know, your offering, your ask ready to go. Australians, and I think to a certain extent, Europeans are very much like, let's have a chat. It's very nice. It's, you know, it's okay just to meet and greet. Or Americans are just like, all right, what are we doing? When? Why? How? So, yeah, so we had to go out there, be very prepared with what we did. We had a lot of great meetings, not only with Google, but with, with Facebook and with other kind of really big tech organizations over there. Ran some events, you know, found a national distribution 
mechanism. And for two years, we we set up work with you know American as well as Australian clients. So it was a really big shift after two years, and it was yeah, it was a it was a busy busy time as you can imagine. Mm. And so to work with Google, because you know Google is like a big name for everyone to know. In fact, it's even a word now. <laughs> you Google everything in your life. You just call Google and say, "Hey, I'm doing this media thing. Can I do some career story with you?" Well, how do you just how do you do that? Yeah, it's all about the networking. So we were actually at a, a presentation by someone who is working in the space, Sally Ann Williams, who is an incredible mover and shaker in science and STEM communication in general. She now works at Cicada Innovations. And she was talking about the problem of getting people into computer science. It was post-dot-com boom at that time. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of sense that the tech space was going anywhere, but tech was hiring faster than anyone else. And I think there was a kind of view that, you know, you study tech, you might be a little bit of a nerd, you might be a guy, you know, with a hoodie in the basement, that kind of like, that sort of stereotype of what was happening. And the truth is, you know, as now, we need more diverse people in technology. We need women working in technology. You know, technology pervades every single aspect of our lives. And when you get it wrong, it's felt by everybody in our lives. You know, when you create a hand dryer that doesn't work for people with dark skin, when you make seatbelts that don't suit women's bodies, when you design drugs that aren't, you know, tested with, with women and children, then you are, you're creating materials that products that are, are, are dangerous and useless at best. Mm. So we need that kind of diversity across all of this kind of science and technology space. And we heard what she was saying and we were like, well, we're STEM specialist communicators. Do you know what? I think we might be able to bring something to this problem. And, and that's how all of that got started. Right. So very strategic in looking for places to be message to hear and then grabbing message that resonate with you and what you yeah. can offer there. That's what I mean about, you know, really understanding your audience. You really have to listen and the audience is, is your clients as well. You know, it's, it's, it's really understanding what the problem is and then thinking, well, what's my skill set and what can I bring to that? Or, you know, is there a gap there that could be filled? So having a good business is about knowing what your gap is and knowing that you have something that's, that's unique or, or different that's going to fill that gap. And so working with big projects from very far, I see now you have, okay, nine years, two million magazines, 75,000 digital users a month and 200 clients. Was that something that you expected when you started? Did, did you have this big vision or you just thought, let's go and see what happened? I think we did have a big vision. I think we're both pretty ambitious women. And I think it's really important to, to believe in yourself and to to see yourself where you are. I, I don't know if I sort of thought I would have had a 10-year business, but I was certainly like, you know, let's have several years in this and make millions of dollars and be super successful and really back ourselves in, in what we do. So it was exciting when we did have success and kind of surprising too, but we also set out with that mindset. Mm, and say, so how slow or how fast did your number progress? Because yeah, you talked about very big project and I guess, you know, being having the publicity of Barack Obama must have been pivotal in growing your numbers. But yeah. was it really quick? It was really quick. And I think a lot of businesses then talk about this issue of you grow quite quickly and then you need to make that decision of, of, of scale. So if you scale up, you're kind of risking spending a lot of money and, and are you going to kind of continue to have that success and get really big? We were really interested in having a business that was sustainable. You know, we we didn't want to be traveling to the US, supervising a team of 80 people. It's just not where 
our hearts were. We still had reasonably young families. We wanted to be able to kind of be around. We, we still wanted to remain, remain based in Australia. So we, we kind of consciously decided that that was what kind of business we were going to have. And once we've done that, I think that huge pressure of the early years and that, that huge jump of, you know, everything that we were doing, it really helped us to develop our offering in a way that we could then create a more sustainable approach and go, okay, we know how much money we're going to make next year. We know what that's going to look like. We know who we're going to work with rather than just always scrambling to go, okay, how do we fulfill orders in a country that we don't even live in you know how do we kind of meet clients you know should we be based in Delaware or Texas or you know what kind of you've got to pick your battles and I think Mm. that we we knew that what we wanted was sustainability and longevity and and that's worked really well for us now we've got a really great system and really great staff on board. So you've got four staff yourself your co-founder and four other staff. Yep. Um, And that's enough to deliver globally. Well you know to a to an extent (laughs) <laughs> we work with a lot of contractors as well. So we probably worked with about sort of 30 to 50 contractors at any one time. So that network and having great people on board and really knowing who you can go to when you need to scale is really important too. Who was your first staff that you hired as the role? We we hired our first staff was kind of like a, an editor in an editorial position, someone with who had a great background in education and was able to also really understand that STEM space. But yeah, that first hire and hiring and firing in general is probably the most challenging side of the business. Why is that? Is it hard to find the talent or... Yeah, and it's bringing people on board your vision. So you've got to, you've got a sense of who you are, but it takes a while. It's like when you make a friend. I think they say you have to spend a certain amount of hours with someone before you can call them a friend. You need to spend a certain amount of time with the staff to bring them on board that vision and to really have them set up so that they can automatically, you know, if someone says, oh, what do you do? Or what's their business? They need to be able to, at a pinch, go, this is what it is. This is what they do. So that, you know, getting those values across and really building that into your business is is so important. Managing people is, is always hard. I think anyone who's ever worked in a management role or a leadership role, it's not easy. You have to be a type of person who has that that clarity of vision. You have to have a lot of confidence. You really have to, you know, be able to nurture someone, but also to have difficult conversations at times as well. And so was you hired to kind of extend your capacity or to bridge a gap in skill set? Yeah, absolutely both. I think it's important just to have people kind of on your team. So people who really believe in what you do. So for me, that's the most important thing. And I will work with what skills my staff member have. So I'll absolutely hire to say, okay, this is the gap that we need to fill. But once I have those people, it's about who are you? What do you want to bring to this? You know, I'm going to bring you on board my vision, but I really want to understand you and what you want to do and really maximize how we work best with people. You know, I want people to be happy. Being happy in my work is really, really important to me. And yeah, I want to make sure that other people are are on board to that as well. I think we're lucky in that we have a vision which is something, you know, we're not a business which is about selling products. We're a business which is about, you know, creating a smarter future. We're about creating, like, resourcing the world so that we can support society, you know, by by promoting science and promoting technology and getting people into that. So that's a vision which, you know, people can really believe in. And it's about, you know, how do we how do we make that profitable and how do we how do we kind of, you know, which organizations are we going to work with and how do we mm. deliver that message? Yeah, so let's talk about this finance. You mentioned you started a business with your own saving with your co-founder. What is the scale that one needs to save before starting a business like that? What kind of like range do you need to start? Yeah, I think, look, with, you know, 
when you're creating services, the the kind of products that you need is yourself, your time, your vision, some technology. So there's not a lot of investment there in terms of what you need to to buy, which is why I think it, you know for us it wasn't really important to have that investment unless we were going to hire a really big team. Mm-hmm. We did look at that, but when you look at having an investor they're going to want a return on investment and you have to understand that they're going to become part of your business too. Getting into business with someone is like getting married. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you start a bank account together, you have legal documentation, you, you know, you have a level of trust. So I think you kind of, you know, it's that thing like you've got to think about who you want to get into bed with and are they going to be the right partner for you? So for us, you know, having one trusted partner and a co-founder, it's just been so essential to the success of the business. I really, I really love working with another brain in that mm. way and, you know, to have a very different brain. You know, understand there's so many different types of people in the world. And I think that some businesses get very in a bubble of what they are and what they should be. But, you know, having that kind of diversity in the team is really, really helpful for us. Mm, so you started sustainable. How long did it take for the business to be sustainable as in, you know, cover the cost, but also cover you and your co-founder, you know, salaries? Yeah, really quickly for us. Within sort of a year, Within maximum a year. two years, we were we always said it's really important that we pay our salaries. So we did that very early on and, and you know, reached really good turnover. And then it was just about you know, setting up the team and getting everything in place. But within, yeah, one to two years, we were absolutely on the run. I mean, we were we were kind of, you know, working as a big business even before we had a space to work in or people to answer the phones or that kind of thing we'd sort of be like oh hang on I'll just put you on hold to our accounts department and <laughs> hang on Karen can you take this call please so mm. you know it was about that that it, the ability to get the people in place was super important what a success story right two years to get like a year to get profitable two years to get very global exposure it really shows how if you're strategic and you have the right offering you can really grow quickly and as you say, we don't going to venture capitals. I mean, I understand it's a service and not a technology, which is a completely different space, but still very quite interesting. And you didn't have to really advertise, right? So your customer base just grew organically, I understand from what you're saying. Yeah, but for us, we, we really knew our customer base really well. We'd been in that space in Cosmos and, we, you know, we knew who we were talking to and it was about just kind of continuing to get out there and find the people who wanted to have those conversations. They changed all the time. I mean, tech companies came on board pretty early, but then it was about, you know, kind of finding government took a while as they do to kind of, you know, get the message and come into the the conversation and start working with them as well. So, yeah, we, we did really know who we were talking to and we spent a lot of time really getting to know our audiences and really working with the, the, the people who are using our content as well. It's, it's just so important. I can't emphasize enough to know mm-hmm. who you're doing what you're doing for and, and really understanding what their perspective is. So you say you work also with a lot of contractors. Is that helping you, you know, to delegate so that you can continue to be strategic? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I love my contractors like I love my staff. You know, I always we always had our contractors to Christmas parties and really worked to understand that they had financial needs. And if we had a great contractor, we'd, we'd work with them really regularly as well. So, mm. yeah, some of my contractors have been with me for 10 years now. So a very nurturing relationship, despite being just a contract. Absolutely. So there's this dichotomy between per- per- permanent and, and, and contract. And I think yeah. you just really steam in the banks, not lending money to anyone that doesn't have a permanent job. But if you're regular at the end of the day, it doesn't make that much difference, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it very scary to start or you were just so excited that you didn't even think about what could go wrong? No, it was definitely scary. Yeah. No, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm definitely the kind of person who really 
thinks about the the risks and you know goes down the track of like what could possibly go wrong so yeah starting that initially deciding I've had several times in my life where I've made those decisions that aren't necessarily the what might seem like the right and safe decisions at the time I left the ABC and went and studied a certificate in fine arts because that's just what I needed at the time I needed to hop out of work for a while and to you know explore that creative side through that I developed in a really amazing kind of freelancing career and you know and then jumping into refraction media as well you know becoming redundant and deciding not to go for another job but to start a business they're not safe and comfortable decisions and it it's so hard at the time and then you look back and you're like yeah that was the best thing I ever did that was so you know amazing and you feel like those are really the runs on the board that you want to share with people and to and to you know be most proud of but yeah they're absolutely scary. Mm, but what helped you making that jump you know did you have like a kind of a risk mitigation strategy in your head and thinking okay well if anything goes wrong I can do that or how, how did you overcome that scary bit? I, I think there's only so much risk mitigation you can do. I think sometimes you just need to just take, keep taking steps towards what you want to do, feeling the anxiety and saying, I feel the anxiety, it's there, but I'm going to keep taking another step. And after a while, you've crossed the bridge, right? It's just about, you know, keeping going. Just the next best thing, one step at a time. One step at a time. Yep. Just mm. keep walking towards where you want to be and what you want to do. They won't always be the right steps, but you'll be taking steps towards it. And, you know, yeah, that's what you need to do to get there. I think we, we all fulfill this. The world of work is changing all of the time. People are having to reskill often at, you know, ages where you feel like you, you, you might not be competitive in the workplace and there's a lot of things to think about. Everyone's in the same boat because our society is changing really mm. rapidly and we need to address really urgent, intense changes with the climate and with our society and where we're at. So, yeah, we all need to just be super brave and super supportive and help each other and, and help each other understand that, you know, what you're doing might not be what traditionally was seen as successful when you were introduced to the world of work, but it's, it's still really important to, to keep doing it. Mm, and this is what I want this podcast to be about is, okay, there are set tracks and this is what people tell you is success, but what is your own success? And and that could take a lot of time to actually define that what is success for yourself and who you are and how it does align to your values. So I really love hearing that story of yours and how successful it was, but where everyone around you supportive or did you have people that says no Heather just don't do that this is not a good idea I think generally I would say I've just been really well supportive those super high achieving parents of mine have never really minded what I do they always believed in me they didn't necessarily understand what I was doing but they always said it was a really good idea I've got a wonderful partner who's just supportive no matter what you know having the support of Karen as my business partner has been really critical I think when you're pitching yourself and, and being in a business, no matter where you're at, it's all about saying, yeah, you know, this is what we're doing and we, you know, we're achieving so much success. And you're always kind of pitching that. So you have to just believe in yourself and back it yourself. I did meet people at mostly at these startups and kind of, you know, business venture sort of areas. I met a guy who said, you could never go to the US. You don't know what you're doing. You know, you're just really, you know, didn't know me from a bar of soap, but just felt like he could say this at this kind of networking event. So the odd kind of, you know, sexist comment like that, but in general, the support's been great. And like I say, there's a lot of support, like really practical support out there if you look for it in the business world as well. There's, you know, there's accountants who can help you. There's business coaches who can help you. There's mentors. There's people that you can just go and have a coffee with who 
will give you the advice. Australians in general are super, super generous with their time and their advice. So, you know, there, there's always that support if you kind of go looking for it. Mm, and especially now, I'm, I want to say to anyone listening, you say that we're generous with our time here in Australia, which I, I believe it's true, but also the remote just helped giving more time because, you know, before when I was used to do networking, I, I used to travel, you know, from one side to the other to the city. It would take me three hours to catch up with someone 30 minutes. Whereas now you can multiply this contact and people are more likely to say yes because it's less of an ask. So definitely leverage that generosity and that expertise uh, across Australia That's and across the world, really. So... That's really good. Right. So not many um, detractors. So that that's great to hear. Let's talk a little bit about the failure. What failed? What was your biggest mistake? I think the the second year of the business was really hard because, you know, as you heard, we were going really hard and doing a lot and we hadn't quite had time to set up the business in terms of those processes. It takes a lot of time to do that. So for me, I was really burned out really early on in the business. So it was that idea of, you know, how can I keep going? How can I, you know, find the right people to do what I'm doing? And when you get to that point, it, it is really hard because you're already burned out and it's like, oh, you know, you don't have the time or the capacity to kind of sit back and look at what you're doing. So I think focusing on your own health is just super important. Like it's really, really important to understand that you, when you're at your busiest and most stressed, is not when you're at your most productive and just allowing yourself to to lean back sometimes, to do nothing and to really find the right thing to do and the right thing to work on. Okay, I hear you. Now, how do you do that practically? Because, you know, this is what we hear at work, take care of your health and we have all this wealth and, and then we overload it with work. So how yeah. do you actually take that step and say, well, yes, I've got these 200 things on my to-do list and I am not going to do them, but yeah. they're, not, they're not getting done. So how, yeah. how do you... Yeah, so <laughs> the impact on your business and stuff if you're not fulfilling, or how how do you handle that? You just say, well, okay, we're going to be late and it's not going to be a big deal, or I can't say that I've ever been like late on things because I have a bit of a punctuality problem. But it's about you know making the space to be outside what you're doing in your everyday life. So at some stage that might be literally outside, like go for a walk or a swim, or it might be, you know, socially or culturally outside, like talk to someone different, go to an event where you wouldn't normally be, meet someone who's working on something, and then you'll just connect with them and say, oh, wow, okay, you know, that's your problem. That's your world. That's what you're working on. I've been working on this and, you know, I, I need to now make that connection with you. So you're making super important connections. You really need to understand that, yeah, you out of your own headspace. I think particularly in today's world where there's algorithms which are emphasizing that bubble, emphasizing our views and, and feeding us the same content and really promoting that, I think it's even more important to understand the kind of different viewpoints that people have and the different perspectives that they have. So just getting out, it'll make you feel better because you get out of your head for a bit and it will also bring huge benefits in helping you to make a difference more across more areas and not just you know just keep working on that same same thing and and mm. you know, that's what problem solving is about it's about finding those different spaces mm. okay yeah no fantastic so did you have any of these parent guilt you know have you said you had small children oh man who doesn't have parent guilt yeah my, my kids are now 15 and 20 and I still have parent guilt mm -hmm. trying so, to learn to live without it okay. <laughs> I don't know, my son yesterday was on the floor and was like, you never play with me. And I'm like, what? Who is, and 
hours on the floor with you playing. And they look at you like this just to make you feel, you know, just stretched. You didn't want to go to bed, to be honest. Yeah. That's all about it is. That's it, you know. And you were there listening to that. It wasn't like the nanny was there just going like, well, yeah, I'm, what are you talking about? Don't play with your mother. We play with our children so much more than past generations played with their children. I was always really proud that my kids, you know, knew what I did and really believed in it. You know, my daughter was like, you know, four or five and, and at home with me. And she knew that, you know, when the phone came, she would just be like, okay, mommy, I'm just going to, you know, do what I want, take my snacks and go in front of the TV now because you're busy. <laughs> and I thought that yeah. was a really great thing for her to learn that, you know, there was that, a professional space and that I had the right to be in that. And that, you know, when I did do that, it was exciting. I've always shared everything that I've done with my kids, like the challenges as well. When I have a, a bad day, I'm like, oh, I had a terrible day because, you know, this happened and then that wasn't great and I don't know what to do next. And my mm. policy is to share the, you know, that kind of crap stuff as well as the successes with them because otherwise they're going to think that they need to be perfect. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we need to we need to share that. And, and part of that is sharing. I feel really bad when I, you know, haven't seen you for a while, but, you know, I'm still there and I still love you. And, hey, look, you learned to make your own lunch. Isn't that great? <laughs> Fantastic lifelong learning. <laughs> so we heard about the mistakes and the most difficult bits and how it's difficult to manage time, but that it's important to look after yourself and take time out to really doing some self-care and come back more energized and available for strategic thinking and delivery. So if you reflect on your own success, can you see any privileges that were enabling you to get better faster? And on the opposite, whether you think any systemic barriers that you think made it harder for you? I think that there are disadvantages and opportunities in being women in business. There can be, as I say, you can sometimes find yourself in misogynistic spaces. I am Caucasian, but I've spoken to people of colour who have found themselves in very similarly confronting spaces where people don't understand that experience and are kind of unknowingly coming at it from a very, you know, prejudiced, unknowledgeable point of view. So, you know, I think that there there can be barriers that you face depending on the person that you are going into these kind of spaces. And obviously, you know, as someone who is Caucasian, I, I have innate privilege in that I am in a society where I see white people reflected back at me all of the time. And I think it's really important to be aware of how uncomfortable it is to be in that space when you, you're not that kind of dominant culture and you don't see that reflected back at you all of the time. Just kind of apart from the privileges and barriers of who I am, Look, I think I was really lucky to have parents who just kind of expected me to be good at what I was good at. And that gave me a huge false sense of confidence, which I've carried throughout my life. So I'm really good at faking it and winging it and jumping into things. And I, I feel really confident in that and doing that. That's just the kind of person that I am. And I think that suits entrepreneurship because, you know, you have to be able to be in different spaces and be like, yeah, I've, I've got the right to be here. Look, having said that, I've got imposter syndrome as much as anyone else. Sometimes in some situations, I was in a meeting the other day and, you know, it was a, a whole bunch of women leaders. And then she was sort of saying, you know, as you're all leaders in your field. And I was like, oh, she must be talking about everyone else and not me. Mm. You know, like those self-doubts definitely creep in. But yeah. Even 10 years after. Even 10 years after. Even when you're of like enormous age of I am and, and, you know, you shouldn't be having those. I had a, went to a wonderful talk from Kathy Foley who talked about 
this sense of believing in yourself. And she's got that wonderful advice where, you know, you go to the bathroom beforehand and you do your power stance and you, you know, have that, you know, you take up space and you really physically do the things to make you feel like you should be there. And the other thing that she said is like, you know what, Heather, it's just about sticking around sometimes too. Like, you know, mm. get through the 30s and the 40s. And when you're a, a woman working in a, you know, leadership area in your 50s and 60s, suddenly everyone want, one wants you because <laughs> you're a rarity. <laughs> So I think that there's a lot to be said that for that as well. And and when you feel that and when you feel that imposter syndrome, it's just, you know, just keep trucking and, you know, just keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good to talk about it because then, you know, everybody can relate. We know that we all go through that and it's not just women really. It's also men. Perhaps yeah. they talk less about it. But and then as you say, know, perhaps, perhaps they feel it less, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I, like it's you know they're not encouraged to share as much as women are on that thing because there yeah, is some true. Yeah. systemic barrier both ways. So you know they're they're supposed to always be the confident, the aggressive, and 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 mm. we're trying to change that obviously. But yep. there is these stereotypes, so it's harder for them to show vulnerability even when they want to. To be honest, so and so you talked about you know being a woman of business is media male dominated or it's fifty fifty. Yeah, media is probably more women dominated. I've mostly worked with women in my career. So the STEM space, not so much. And that kind of STEM sort of education and leadership space, not so much. But media is, yeah, a place where you do find a lot of women, not necessarily running the show, but certainly working in media and communications. And as you say, that's that's part of what we do as women. But you go to schools and you talk about STEM. Now, the STEM engagement for girls is much lower than the STEM engagement for boys, at least at university level. We can see simply the participation. There's less women holding degree in STEM. And then the one that do, they usually leave the sector within five years because of loads of different systemic issues. Is that something that you see at school? Yeah, look, it's it's getting better, but you know, there are areas like engineering where it can still be as low as 5% and computer science as well, you know, 15%. I I think that that confounding factor of just being as I say that the only person in that space who feels like you do, it's just so difficult to keep going like that. It's just so difficult to really believe that you should be there and that you're good enough to be there. So I think it's really really critical that we, you know, continue to make it a comfortable space for all genders and all backgrounds. And and we have to do that by not only saying, hey, you know, you're really welcome in this space and there's lots of great opportunity, but really recreating the the spaces and the systems themselves. As you say, educating boys and sort of decreasing this kind of sense of toxic masculinity and I have to be right and I'm a you know mathematician or an engineer and I'm right and I'm good and I'm better than everybody else. Like that's not what maths and engineering and science is about. It's about people working together collaboratively to solve problems. There is no genius scientist who's going to change the world. There's great smart people working on different problems, but they're working with teams. And that kind of whole assumption is just so false. And we just really need to emphasize that it's about having fun in a friendly way, solving problems. You know, engineering is just about coming up with cool ideas to solve problems. So we really Mm -hmm. just need to work to kind of change perceptions and change that system as well. I think it's that's super important. Make flexible workspaces for women work, and, and for men as well. Encourage men to, to take off time during child re- rearing. Encourage them, them to be, you know, a part of the home and the society. Mm. Uh, and just really rethinking those outdated 50s perceptions of what it is, you yeah, know, to be a woman and a man. It's just, it doesn't have to be true. Mm. And for anyone looking for a business idea out there, I suggest to read Invisible Woman, who is all about the gender data gap. 
And I'm sure there is a wealth of opportunity there to you know, create new technology or new design or new urbanism to bridge those gaps that would be hugely successful in business. So Yes, people- I love it. And once you do, get in touch and we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you want to leave us with a book that inspired you and a song that energized you? Yep. In a terms of amazing book in the science communication space, Ed Yong's I Contain Multitudes is absolutely my favorite. He writes about gut bacteria and the fact that we are, you know, we have more cells that are from a different origin from our own human cells than we do our own human cells in our body. And it just really makes you think, you know, no matter what your problems are or where you are, just realizing that, no, you're actually just a walking ecosystem. I think it's a really cool perspective and it's just astounding on how we respond to our environment. So I really recommend that. And he's a fantastic science writer. He's absolutely brilliant. And in terms of a song, I'm going to go with You Are My Sunshine, which is something that I used to sing to my kids all of the time. For me, that's just about reaffirming that self-belief and reaffirming that you can listen to that. Think about just being a really bright spot in the world, like shine brightly on other people and, and they'll shine brightly back at you. That was Heather Catchball, the founder of Refraction Media. Often, when we think about the genesis of a business, we imagine the founders going through a few years of financial misery. But it does not always have to be true, at least not in the service space where you don't need a huge amount of capital to develop a new tech from scratch. But the trick is that you really need to know your niche, your audience, and understand where to meet this audience and their needs. But still, how does one manage to build so much visibility that the President of the United States of America, Barack Obama himself, mind you, recommends your product? Well, get a big partner on board, like, you know, Google. And how do you even do that? Well, Heather say, hang out where they do hear their message, their challenges. And if you can meet them where their pain points are, with a vision, then you've got a chance and a way in. And this is exactly what Heather and Karen did. They built their amazing expertise for over a decade in the science media industry, got the skills, a huge network and a name for themselves. And then they were very attentive to where they could bring a fresh perspective. And when Sally Ann Williams, Google's executive R&D program manager at the time, talked at the conference about how hard it was to bring diversity in the talent pool in computer science, they proposed an avenue to get more people in, like working on lowering the stigma, the stereotype of the IT guy working in the basement. Bottom line, be strategic and back yourself up. You've got this. So tell me, where can you go to find people talking about a problem that you can contribute to solve? Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it. Tune in for monthly episodes. You can follow multiple hats, visit my website. That's angelicgreco.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for Angelic Greco. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about your story, leave me a message.